Chapter Eight of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Eight. Daggers Drawn. The two young men, having seen the damsels their charges enter the courtyard of the nun's house, and finding themselves coldly stared at by the brazen door-plate, as if the battered old beau with the glass in his eye were insolent, look at one another, look along the perspective of the moonlit street, and slowly walk away together. "'Do you stay here long, Mr. Drood?' says Neville. Oh, not this time, is the careless answer. I leave for London again to-morrow, but I shall be here on and off until next midsummer. Then I shall take my leave of Cloisterham, and England too, for many a long day, I expect. Are you going abroad? Going to wake up Egypt a little, is the condescending reply. Are you reading? Reading? repeats Edwin Drood, with a touch of contempt. No, doing, working, engineering. My small patrimony was left a part of the capital of the firm I am with, by my father, a former partner, and I am a charge upon the firm until I come of age, and then I step into my modest share in the concern. Jack, you met him at dinner, is, until then, my guardian and trustee." I heard from Mr. Crisparkle of your other good fortune. What do you mean by my other good fortune? Neville has made his remark in a watchfully advancing and yet furtive and shy manner, very expressive of that peculiar air already noticed of being at once hunter and hunted. Edwin has made his retort with an abruptness not at all polite. They stop and interchange a rather heated look. "'I hope,' says Neville, "'that there is no offence, Mr. Drood, in my innocently referring to your betrothal.' "'By George!' cries Edwin, leading on again in a somewhat quicker pace. "'Everybody in this chattering old cloisterum refers to it. I wonder no public house has been set up with my portrait for the sign of the betrothed's head.' or Pussy's portrait, or one or the other. I am not accountable for Mr. Crisparkle mentioning the matter to me, quite openly, Neville begins. No, that's true, you are not, Edwin drew dissents. But, resumes Neville, I am accountable for mentioning it to you, and I did so on the supposition that you could not fail to be highly proud of it. Now there are these two curious touches of human nature working the secret springs of this dialogue. Neville Landless is already enough impressed by little Rosebud to feel indignant that Edwin Drood, far below her, should hold his prize so lightly. Edwin Drood is already enough impressed by Helena to feel indignant that Helena's brother, far below her, should dispose of him so coolly 
and put him out of the way so entirely. However, the last remark had better be answered. So says Edwin, I don't know, Mr. Neville, adopting that mode of address from Mr. Crisp-Sparkle, that what people are proudest of they usually talk most about. I don't know either that what they are proudest of they most like other people to talk about. But I live a busy life, and I speak under correction by you readers, who ought to know everything, and I dare say do. By this time they had both become savage. Mr. Neville, out in the open, Edwin Drood under the transparent cover of a popular tune, and a stop now and then to pretend to admire picturesque effects in the moonlight before him. "'It does not seem to me very civil in you,' remarks Neville at length, "'to reflect upon a stranger who comes here not having had your advantages to try to make up for lost time. But to be sure I was not brought up in busy life, and my ideas of civility were formed among heathens.' "'Perhaps the best civility, whatever kind of people we are brought up among,' retorts Edwin Drood, "'is to mind our own business. If you will set me that example, I promise to follow it.' "'Do you know that you take a great deal too much upon yourself?' is the angry rejoiner. "'And in that part of the world I come from, you would be called to account for it.' "'By whom, for instance?' asks Edwin Drood, coming to a halt, and surveying the other with a look of disdain. But here a startling right hand is laid on Edwin's shoulder, and Jasper stands between them, for it would seem that he, too, has strolled round by the nun's house, and has come up behind them on the shadowy side of the road. "'Ned, Ned, Ned!' he says, we must have no more of this. I don't like this. I have overheard high words between you two. Remember, my dear boy, you are almost in the position of host to-night. You belong, as it were, to the place, and in a manner represent it towards a stranger. Mr. Neville is a stranger, and you should respect the obligations of hospitality— and Mr. Neville, laying his left hand on the inner shoulder of that young gentleman, and thus walking on between them hand to shoulder on either side, "'You will pardon me, but I appeal to you to govern your temper too. Now, what is amiss? But why ask? Let there be nothing amiss, and the question is superfluous. We are all three on a good understanding, are we not?' After a silent struggle between the two young men, who shall speak last, Edwin Drood strikes in with, "'So far as I am concerned, Jack, there is no anger in me.' "'Nor in me,' says Neville Landless, though not so freely, or perhaps so carelessly. "'But if Mr. Drood knew all that lies behind me far away from here,' He might know better how it is that sharp-edged words have sharp edges to wound me. Perhaps, says Jasper, in a soothing manner, we had better not say anything, having the appearance of a remonstrance or condition. 
it might not seem generous. Frankly and freely, you see there is no anger in Ned. Frankly and freely, there is no anger in you, Mr. Neville. None at all, Mr. Jasper. Still not quite so frankly or so freely, or be it said once again, not quite so carelessly, perhaps. All over, then. Now my bachelor gatehouse is a few yards from here, and the heater is on the fire, and the wine and glasses are on the table, and it is not a stone's throw from Minor Cannon Corner. Ned, you are up and away to-morrow. We will carry Mr. Neville in with us, and take a stirrup-cup. With all my heart, Jack. And with all mine, Mr. Jasper. Neville finds it impossible to say less, but would rather not go. He has an impression upon him that he has lost hold of his temper, feels that Edwin Drood's coolness, so far from being infectious, makes him red-hot. Mr. Jasper, still walking in the centre, hand to shoulder on either side, beautifully turns the refrain of a drinking song, and they all go up to his rooms. There the first object visible, when he adds the light of a lamp to that of the fire, is the portrait over the chimney-piece. It is not an object calculated to improve the understanding between the two young men, as rather awkwardly reviving the subject of their difference. Accordingly, they both glance at it consciously, but say nothing. Jasper, however, who would appear from his conduct to have gained but an imperfect clue to the cause of their late high words, directly calls attention to it. "'You recognise that picture, Mr. Neville?' shading the lamp to throw the light upon it. "'I recognise it, but it is far from flattering the original.' "'Oh, you are hard upon it. It was done by Ned, who made me a present of it.' "'I am sorry for that, Mr. Drood.' Neville apologises with a real intention to apologise. "'If I had known I was in the artist's presence—' "'Oh, a joke, sir, a mere joke,' Edwin cuts in with a provoking yawn. "'A little humouring of Pussy's points. I am going to paint her gravely one of these days, if she's good.' The air of leisurely patronage and indifference with which this is said, as the speaker throws himself back in a chair, and clasps his hands at the back of his head, as a rest for it, is very exasperating to the excitable and excited Neville. Jasper looks observantly from the one to the other, slightly smiles, and turns his back to mix a jug of mulled wine at the fire. It seems to require much mixing and compounding. "'I suppose, Mr. Neville,' says Edwin, quick to resent the indignant protest against himself in the face of young Landless, which is fully as visible as the portrait, or the fire, or the lamp, "'I suppose that if you painted the picture of your lady-love—' "'I can't paint,' is the hasty interruption. "'That's your misfortune, and not your fault. "'You would if you could. "'But if you could, I suppose you would make her, "'no matter what she was in reality, "'Juno, Minerva, Diana, and Venus, 
all in one, eh? I have no lady-love, and I can't say. If I were to try my hand, says Edwin, with a boyish boastfulness getting up in him, on a portrait of Miss Landless, in earnest, mind you, in earnest, you should see what I could do. My sister's consent to sit for it being first got, I suppose, as it never will be got, I am afraid I shall never see what you can do. I must bear the loss. Jasper turns round from the fire, fills a large goblet glass for Edwin, and hands each his own, then fills for himself, saying, Come, Mr. Neville, we are to drink to my nephew Ned. As it is his foot that is in the stirrup, metaphorically, our stirrup cup is to be devoted to him. Ned, my dearest fellow, my love. Jasper sets the example of nearly emptying his glass, and Neville follows it. Edwin Drood says, "'Thank you both very much,' and follows the double example. "'Look at him,' cries Jasper, stretching out his hand admiringly and tenderly, though rallyingly, too. "'See where he lounges so easily, Mr. Neville. The world is all before him where to choose.' A life of stirring work and interest, a life of change and excitement, a life of domestic ease and love. Look at him. Edwin Drood's face has become quickly and remarkably flushed with the wine. So has the face of Neville Landless. Edwin sits still thrown back in his chair, making that rest of clasped hands for his head. See how little he heeds it all, Jasper proceeds in a bantering vein. It is hardly worth his while to pluck the golden fruit that hangs ripe on the tree for him. And yet, consider the contrast, Mr. Neville. You and I have no prospect of stirring work and interest, or of change and excitement, or of domestic ease and love. You and I have no prospect— unless you are more fortunate than I am, which may easily be, but the tedious unchanging round of this dull place. "'Upon my soul, Jack,' says Edwin complacently, "'I feel quite apologetic for having my way smoothed, as you describe. But you know what I know, Jack, and it may not be so very easy as it seems, after all. May it, Pussy?' to the portrait, with a snap of his thumb and finger. "'We have got to hit it off yet, haven't we, Pussy?' "'You know what I mean, Jack?' His speech has become thick and indistinct. Jasper, quiet and self-possessed, looks to Neville as expecting his answer or comment. When Neville speaks, his speech is also thick and indistinct. It might have been better for Mr. Drew to have known some hardships, he says defiantly. Pray, retorts Edwin, turning merely his eyes in that direction. Pray, why might it have been better for Mr. Drew to have known some hardships? Aye, Jasper assents with an air of interest. Let us know why. 
"'Because they might have made him more sensible,' says Neville, "'of good fortune that is not by any means necessarily the result of his own merits.' Mr. Jasper quickly looks to his nephew for his rejoiner. "'Have you known hardships, may I ask?' says Edwin Drood, sitting upright. Mr. Jasper quickly looks to the other for his retort. "'I have.' "'And what have they made you sensible of?' Mr. Jasper's play of eyes between the two holds good throughout the dialogue to the end. I have told you once before to-night. You have done nothing of the sort. I tell you, I have, that you take a good deal too much upon yourself. You added something else to that, if I remember? Yes, I did say something else. Say it again. I said that in the part of the world I come from, you would be called to account for it. Only there, cries Edwin Drood, with a contemptuous laugh. A long way off, I believe. Yes, I see. That part of the world is at a safe distance. Say here, then, rejoins the other, rising in a fury. Say anywhere. Your vanity is intolerable. Your conceit is beyond endurance. You talk as if you were some rare and precious prize instead of a common boaster. You are a common fellow, and a common boaster. Pooh-pooh, says Edwin Drood, equally furious but more collected. How should you know? You may know a black common fellow or a black common boaster when you see him. "'and no doubt you have a large acquaintance that way. "'But you are no judge of white men.' "'This insulting allusion to his dark skin "'infuriates Neville to that violent degree "'that he flings the dregs of his wine at Edwin Drood, "'and is in the act of flinging the goblet after it "'when his arm is caught in the nick of time by Jasper. "'Ned, my dear fellow,' he cries in a loud voice, I entreat you, I command you, to be still. There has been a rush of all the three, and a clattering of glasses and overturning of chairs. Mr. Neville, for shame, give this glass to me. Open your hand, sir, I will have it. But Neville throws him off, and pauses for an instant in a raging passion, with the goblet yet in his uplifted hand. Then he dashes it down under the grate, with such force that the broken splinters fly out again in a shower, and he leaves the house. When he first emerges into the night air, nothing around him is still or steady, nothing around him shows like what it is. He only knows that he stands with a bare head in the midst of a blood-red whirl, waiting to be struggled with, and to struggle to the death. But nothing happening and the moon looking down upon him as if he were dead after a fit of wrath, he holds his steam hammer beating head and heart, and staggers away. Then he becomes half conscious of having heard himself bolted and barred out, like a dangerous animal, and thinks, what shall he do? 
some wildly passionate ideas of the river dissolve under the spell of the moonlight on the cathedral and the graves, and the remembrance of his sister, and the thought of what he owes to the good man who has but that very day won his confidence and given him his pledge. He repairs to Minor Cannon Corner, and knocks softly at the door. It is Mr. Crisp's Farkle's custom to sit up last of the early household, very softly touching his piano, and practising his favourite parts in concerted vocal music. The south wind that goes where it lists by way of Cannon Corner on a still night is not more subdued than Mr. Crisp's Farkle at such times, regardful of the slumbers of the china shepherdess. His knock is immediately answered by Mr. Crisparkle himself. When he opens the door, candle in hand, his cheerful face falls, and disappointed amazement is in it. "'Mr. Neville, in this disorder, where have you been?' "'I have been to Mr. Jasper, sir, with his nephew.' "'Come in.' The minor canon props him by the elbow with a strong hand, in a strictly scientific manner worthy of his morning trainings, and turns him into his own little book-room, and shuts the door. "'I have begun ill, sir. I have begun dreadfully ill.' "'Too true. You are not sober, Mr. Neville.' "'I am afraid I am not, sir, though I can satisfy you at another time that I have had a very little indeed to drink.' and that it overcame me in the strangest and most sudden manner. "'Mr. Neville, Mr. Neville,' says the minor canon, shaking his head with a sorrowful smile, "'I have heard that said before.' "'I think my mind is much confused, but I think it is equally true of Mr. Jasper's nephew, sir.' "'Very likely,' is the dry rejoiner. "'We quarrelled, sir.' He insulted me most grossly. He had heated that tigerish blood I told you of to-day before then. "'Mr. Neville,' rejoins the minor canon, mildly but firmly, "'I request you not to speak to me with that clenched right hand. Unclench it, if you please.' "'He goaded me,' pursued the young man, instantly obeying, "'beyond my power of endurance.' I cannot say whether or no he meant it at first, but he did it. He certainly meant it at last. In short, sir, with an irrepressible outburst, in the passion into which he lashed me, I would have cut him down if I could, and I tried to do it. You have clenched that hand again, is Mr. Chris Sparkle's quiet commentary. I beg your pardon, sir. You know your room, for I showed it you before dinner, but I will accompany you to it once more. Your arm, if you please, softly, for the house is all abed. Scooping his hand into the same scientific elbow-rest as before, and backing it up with the inert strength of his arm, as skilfully as a police expert, and with an apparent repose quite unattainable by novices, Mr. Chris Sparkle conducts his pupil to the pleasant and orderly old room prepared for him. 
Arrived there, the young man throws himself into a chair, and flinging his arms upon his reading-table, rests his head upon them with an air of wretched self-reproach. The gentle minor canon has had it in his thoughts to leave the room without a word, but looking round at the door, and seeing this dejected figure, he turns back to it, touches it with a mild hand, says, "'Good-night!' A sob is his only acknowledgment. He might have had many a worse. Perhaps could have had few better. Another soft knock at the outer door attracts his attention, and he goes downstairs. He opens it to Mr. Jasper, holding in his hand the pupil's hat. "'We had an awful scene with him,' says Jasper in a low voice. "'Has it been as bad as that?' "'Murderous!' Mr. Crisparkle remonstrates. "'No, no, no! Do not use such strong words!' "'He might have laid my dear boy dead at my feet. It is no fault of his that he did not, but that I was, through the mercy of God, swift and strong with him. He would have cut him down on my hearth.' The phrase smites home. Ah, thinks Mr. Crisparkle, his own words. Seeing what I have seen to-night, and hearing what I have heard, adds Jasper with great earnestness, I shall never know peace of mind when there is danger of those two coming together with no one else to interfere. It was horrible. There is something of the tiger in his dark blood. Ah, thinks Mr. Crisparkle, so he said. You, my dear sir, pursues Jasper, taking his hand, even you have accepted a dangerous charge. You need have no fear for me, Jasper, returns Mr. Crisparkle, with a quiet smile. I have none for myself. I have none for myself, returns Jasper, with an emphasis on the last pronoun because I am not, nor am I in the way of being the object of his hostility. But you may be, and my dear boy has been. Good night. Mr. Crisparkle goes in, with the hat that has so easily, so almost imperceptibly, acquired the right to be hung up in his hall, hangs it up, and goes thoughtfully to bed. End of chapter 8 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England During the late summer of 2007